0: About two years ago, when my daughter was a junior in high school, I could see that I needed to prepare for goodbye, some forced preparation because I was not going to like it. I wanted time to reflect on what this chapter of my life had meant, this chapter of active, full-bodied parenting. I wanted time to prepare to let her go but I'm someone I have discovered over the years who is much more likely to do things for myself if I'm accountable to someone else. So I hit on this brilliant idea. I would do a book. I'd make an excuse to be in this conversation with other people. I'd give us all a chance to put a bow on the ears of diapers and skinned knees. I'd ask them to, with me, pick their heads, if they were still in it, out of the daily slog, the long haul of bottles and school trips, to pull out a gem or two and to acknowledge it. That it was about more than just the business of life, but it was part of our journey of meaning-making and spiritual formation. And to that end, I didn't actually want it to be just parents. I wanted to include everyone in this reflection, everyone who is in the work of loving and companioning young lives, everyone who had fingers and toes and arms and whole bodies immersed in this piece of life wherever and however we stepped into it or were yanked unceremoniously into it, and sometimes both. I wanted to be in this community of reflection at which I would have the privilege to stand at the center. It was incredibly brilliant if I do say so myself, and I am saying so myself. So I pitched the idea to Skinner House Books, which is our internal Unitarian Universalist publishing house, for whom I've done two smaller books of just my own reflections. And we together clarified some things and they accepted the proposal and we were off to the races. I started reaching out for submissions. I wrote folks who I knew were thoughtful about their lives. I tried to get every possible perspective from a person who chose to be child free. Cheryl Walker, who wrote the Imani's Question Reflection, wrote that piece. To people who'd entered into relationship with kids in all the different forms and relationships, I could think of grandparents, adoring aunties. Richard Davis Lowell, where are you, Richard? Wrote a piece that's in the book that's beautiful about his stepping into being a big brother with the boy, now man, Andre, who comes to church sometimes, becoming part of that connection, that gorgeous thing that many of us know as chosen family. There were stepmothers and parents who negotiated multicultural families. And because I wanted this to be a full spectrum of what caretaking looked like or represented, I even reached out to two colleagues who had suffered the worst kind of losses, reached out as tenderly as I could to see if they would be willing to contribute so those who suffered similar losses could see themselves in this collection too. And Kim's piece that I read was one of those. They graciously, gorgeously agreed. I want, I want everyone who stepped into the book to find or see themselves somewhere reflected in at least one of its stories. And the only experience that I hoped for, but isn't represented is that of trans families or parents of kids who are genderqueer or transitioning. Although actually there are some of those families in the book, but they're not talking about that part of their journey, so they're not evidently so. Or they felt that that story wasn't theirs as the parent to tell. So I also left room in the opening introduction for a sequel to the book. If you don't see yourself in it, you're supposed to email me at vrsouthernbook at because it's clear we couldn't capture all the stories worth capturing and sharing in 100-page volume. I realized when I was writing the sermon that I haven't checked the email box. I'm scared a little bit, but also hoping it's full. And the journey of pulling it together was a surprise. I don't know why I thought it didn't think that it might be. I guess we don't know what we don't know until we know it. (laughs) It's part of the adventure of life. And the truth is, when I reached out or sent out things to Unitarian Universalist listservs and colleague groups, in retrospect, I realized that I expected something different than what I got back. I expected a lot of lighthearted things. Like Cheryl Walker says in her essay, "Amani's Question, I expected a lot of kids say the darndest things. I expected sweet stories of out of the mouths of babes wisdom or epiphanies or love songs sung by a worn out caregiver looking at a sleeping child. I worried, in fact, at the get-go, that the volume might lean into hallmark sweetness and lack enough texture and muscle. Boy, was I wrong. What came in was so much broader than what I had envisioned. One colleague who I knew was thoughtful and intentional and a passionate person and parent wrote an essay about raising her biracial child in a white UU setting and wondering if she can stand to watch her daughter suffer the same microaggressions that she, the mother, has tolerated. Whether it's right to subject her child to that, as much as the mother adores our faith and serves it with her life, There was a reflection about a child who swings between incredible sweetness and uncontrollable violence and how hard it is to be their parent. There was a reflection about loving a child who is yours only by marriage and losing rights to them in a divorce, infertility, a story we skipped this morning for time concerns about a woman raising a boy with autism and his vulnerability of being in the world misunderstood the vulnerability and fear she has for him. Like Carmen's reflection, so many of our stories were about the heartbreak and joy that comes when you choose or life thrusts you into the wild ride of the roller coaster of companioning young life. Loving a child, someone once said, is like forever having your heart outside your body. So many stories had that vulnerability, theirs and ours, the children and our own, woven into them. The stories that came to me, in fact, had such richness and heaviness that by the time the collection was done, I asked the editor and publisher that I was working with if they thought the collection was too much of a downer, (laughs) too hard, the opposite, in fact, of the hallmark after-school book I thought it might be. No, they agreed. It had both energies in it. It felt grounded and rich and hard and true and joyful. That strange kind of joy, the bittersweet kind, maybe the most real description of joy there is. Maybe that was one of the takeaways of being at the honored position to sit at the center of this anthology to realize all the layers of the stories around you, ones that you don't normally get to see unless someone lets you in, and how none of them is hallmark. None of our lives are hallmark. The world of our journeys with young lives, with all the unfolding of those lives, with all the circumstances of those lives, and the challenges and the grace, but also the hammer of fate sweeping across and through them is one window into the same forces that land in all of our lives to challenge and temper us. And so life with another life, always as with these young lives, is destined to be bittersweet. Sweetness mixed with the struggle, laughter with the heartbreak. Often if it's theirs, it's heartbreak that we would take away if we could. But instead we just witness and stand by and help pick up the pieces from and put them back on their feet. Stand by until they reach out again. And no sooner do you realize the hardship of standing in this piece of it than you remember that someone stood in this place for us. Or more accurately, a bunch of someones, right? An aunt here, a nurse at the health center there, a teacher, a coach a friend's father, a friend's mother, a neighbor, all the lives that companioned all of our lives through all the bitter and all the sweetness of our life, the hallmark and the heartbreak. And what we do then when we offer to step into a young life, anyone's life, is to offer to be there for that too, the mix of it. That's what life together means, all of it. Bitter and sweet. I guess we don't get through any other way, do we? It was the exact thing I was contending with that brought me to write the book, Preparations for an Empty Nest, right? Bitter and sweet. I write in one of my two essays in the book, which I will modify now, the following about that. It must have been around six months when we were told it should happen that our daughter Lila, our only child, crawled across the living room rug for the first time. Rohit, my husband, and I were both there to witness it, all that coordination of limbs, chubbiness, in determined motion. We cheered, which was probably what made the kid fall over. And then I started crying, sobbing, I guess. What's the matter? Rohit asked, surprised and confused as one would be, and here's what I said, which is what I thought in the moment of her first crawl through the universe. Now she's crawling, and then she'll be walking, he nodded with an expression of, yes, so far so good, right? And then she'll be leaving home and going to college, and it will be over. It was jumping the gun, of course, but... It was where my mind and heart went, that sense that time once started just blasts off and it's over in an eye blink. There was a lot I didn't mention or foresee in that moment, the stuff that fills up the years, first days of this and that and illness and sleepovers and getting grit and being gutsy and being compassionate and such a great dancer. Oh, and all that constant singing in the house, that too, so much between crawling and leaving. Bean, as we call her, is now finishing her first year in college. And so I wanna say that that woman crying all those years ago, kneeling on the living room rug between, behind a surprised chubby baby who had just figured out how to make arm and leg work in opposing rhythm to propel herself forward that woman was right they were just an eye blink away from goodbye little did i know what i would learn and have learned in all the companioning of young lives, as I'm sure you have stories, all of which you're gonna send me to that email address. And little did I know what I would have underlined for me when I proposed this anthology. How even the parts of life that we think should be the most joyful if we look closely are hard and heartbreaking and gorgeous and treasured bitter and sweet, no peace of life exempt. And how I learned that empty nesting was just one story of all the stories of loving and letting go that were part of parenting, temporal stories of letting go and final ones. And that how that also is part of life, a window into what's true in every piece of our lives, that we are always an eye blink away from some piece of goodbye, which is terribly scary and also very important to remember, right? So we keep our eyes open and our hands outstretched in welcome, and we hold one another, and we treat our time together as an incredibly sacred gift, which it is So I want us to take a moment and give thanks for everybody who companioned and loved our lives. And for all we companioned, may I thank you for your gift to the universe and send a blessing to us all for all the ways we love the world forward. Amen.
1: It was 1991, and Joanne, Carolyn, and I, three Franciscan women, had just moved into a barrio in Nicaragua. The next day, some neighbors showed up at our house with a child who looked maybe about two years old. They knew little about her, They did know that her mom left her all day alone in a small wooden shack while she went to work as an empleada, a maid in the adjacent Colonia. They thought maybe that we could do something. The mother would leave the child all day with one leg tied to a scissor bed while she went to work. Joanne and I were a bit caught as we had made plans to take the bus and join Carolyn for lunch. We didn't yet have a stove to cook, so we had planned to eat out. There weren't any phones for us to call Carolyn or to adjust our plans, so our only option seemed to take this little munchkin with us. We were a little anxious because we didn't know if her mother would return before we got back, What if we ran into her carrying her child? What if someone else recognized her being carried out of the barrio by two gringos? Still, we did. The awkward thing was we didn't know her name. As we sat on the bus, I would say, Maria, Guadalupe, Ana, nothing. She didn't respond, and more amazingly, I noticed she didn't cry. She hadn't cried in the whole ordeal. That later became something that I noticed. Why cry? There wasn't anyone around to hear. Carolyn, of course, was naturally a bit surprised when we appeared with this child in tow. After telling her what had unfolded that morning, we had a good laugh. Just the day before, the Maryknoll sisters had visited us in our new home, and we all joked that one of us had to have a child because the land we had built our house on had no title. The land was an invaded settlement, so with no title, the only thing was that the house could be passed on to an heir. I, being the youngest in the crowd, was seen as the most viable option for such a task. And then, poof, here appears this 20-plus-month-old child who actually looked a little like me. When the mother returned home later that day, she was told that we had her daughter with us. When she arrived, we talked with her and asked her how we and the other neighbors could maybe help her we learned that the name of the child was Carla Vanessa. We never guessed that one. That day began a whole journey. There's not enough time to tell the whole story, but it eventually came to be that Carla Vanessa was taken to a children's home and I became kind of like the informal guardian. Most every weekend and holiday, she came to our house. We provided her clothes and her care and the continuity, and we loved her. And yet we, I was limited. I couldn't adopt her. I couldn't even have her live with us full time. I would get weepy each week as we had to take her back to the children's home on the bus as she would begin to recognize the landmarks as we would go around, and she would begin to cry. She had learned to cry out loud because somebody was there to respond. After many dramatic twists and turns, the mother taking her out of the children's home and disappearing for months, only to abandon her again, Carla was returned to the children's home in Managua, And once again, we began our weekly time. Then one afternoon, a woman showed up at our house. I recognized Joan. She was a Canadian living and working in Nicaragua. She came to tell me that she was beginning the adoption process of a little girl, and it happened to be Carla Vanessa. But she came to ask me was for me to fade in the background, not to connect with Carla for a while, while she became Carla Vanessa's mother. I did understand, and I cried too. Joan had made a decision to be a mother. I had made a decision not to. Taking another under one's wing is a beautiful and heart-wrenchingly complicated thing to do. With Carla and many beings since, I am forever being stared down by my limitations, whether they be the inability to be one's real mother or heal the impossible and ingrained needs of one who has deep loss and abandonment or the limitations set by choices and decisions and other commitments I have made. The unexpected adventures that come with making it up as you go along, the unbelievable learnings and memories, and the deep gratitude sit side by side with the heart feeling torn in letting go and still I would do it all over again. Just to say, we reconnected when Joan arrived a year or two later to invite me to Carla's graduation from kindergarten. It was a new moment and we were new friends. And Carla now is a beautiful grown woman living and working in Canada.